Hello and welcome to 100 Campaigns That Changed the World, um, podcast that brings you campaigns, large and small, uh, that will enlighten you about what makes campaigns tick and how you get social and political change, um, what works, what doesn't work. My interview today is with Andrea. Uh, Andrea's given name is a pseudonym. Um, the reason her, her identity is hidden in that way is that she is one of 30 or so women who, um, unknown to them, had long-term sexual relationships with um, an undercover police officer. Um, and so while matters are under investigation, as they are with her, uh, she cannot talk publicly about her ordeal using her real identity. So her experience um, with the officer was not unique, as I say, as uh, he was one of about 140 undercover police officers in two covert police units who spied on more than 1,000 political groups, mostly left-wing protest groups. There were, I think, three right-wing groups in that one list of 1,000 and also the Young Liberals. Um, and they were deployed uh, over the long term uh, in these secret operations, usually lasting about five years. This has been going on since 1968. There were two units involved, the National Public Order Intelligence Unit and the Special Demonstration Squad. Um, both have been shut down. Now, in, in November 2015, the Met Police apologised to seven women tricked into relationships over a period of 25 years by the officers in the two squads. Um, the officers involved eventually vanished, leaving victims victims feeling as if, uh, and this is in their own words, they had been subject to psychological torture. Um, there were some financial settlements uh, made uh, to seven of the women so far. The disclosures also led to the closing of the units, as I said, but also the setting up of a, a public inquiry, the undercover police inquiry, which is now led by Sir John Mitting. Um, and one of the groups, one of the sort of campaigning groups representing the victims of uh, such practices, and the one which Andrew is associated with is called Police Spies Out of Our Lives. Um, and... They work with other groups and jointly operate a campaign called Spy Cops, which aims to bring out the truth and get justice for the victims to ensure that such activities never take place again. So here is the podcast with, uh, not her real name, Andrea. Hello and welcome to 100 Campaigns That Change the World. I'm here with uh, Andrea um, and Andrea uh, is here as part of a campaign called Spy Cops and she uh, works with an organisation called Police Spies Out of Our Lives. Um, so uh, welcome Andrea. Hi Steve, nice Hi. to be here. Um, so uh, I've, I've described in the, in, the, in the sort of stand first to this podcast a little bit about uh what happened um to you and, and some some other women uh in in years gone by with with regard to uh police being undercover police 
um, infiltrating groups that you were involved with. But could you could you describe just in you know a little bit more about what happened and then maybe what happened to you as well? So over the course of about forty years, there were two very secretive police units within the Metropolitan Police. First one was called the SDS, and the second one NPOIU. And they were tasked with political policing. So their their remit was to infiltrate progressive campaign groups. And when I say progressive campaign groups, we know that there were approximately a thousand campaign groups spied upon and they were overwhelmingly on the left, the progressive left. So environmental groups, socialist, left-wing animal rights organisations... And I suppose our part in that broad spectrum is that we were deceived into relationships with undercover police officers. And we didn't know they were undercover police officers. We believed them to be left-wing activists. And there are, as we know, about 30 of us women who've found out. And of the officers, there's 21 that we know of who had relationships, but we suspect there are many, many more. Yeah, and, and how did the information come to light? How did you kind of... How did the women start to link up with each other? Okay, so originally, so I I found out in 2015 when the story was already in the news. I'd I'd been in that relationship from 2002 to 2004, but didn't suspect a thing for over a decade. But in 2010, that's basically when the story broke and two things were happening separately. So one woman who was in a relationship with Mark Kennedy, who was known as Mark Stone in his undercover name, discovered his real um, identification while they were on holiday together. And he confessed that he was an undercover police officer. And in the meantime, a small group of other women who, ha- who believed that they'd been deceived into relationships had started to group together. So the two groups combined, and that led to a case where eight women... Um, started to work with the human rights lawyer Harriet Westrick and they launched a successful case against the police so that they they kind of started to meet in 2010 Mm. and that case was um, finally concluded in 2015 which was just when I found out separately and um, presumably that that coming together that was a crucial moment in the sort of campaign it was massively crucial so there were eight women as I say one of the women was Helen Steele who's a very well known activist and she was involved in the McLeibel campaign right Um, so several of the women were quite high profile activists in their own right not all of us are but several of them were And when they started to get together, they were able to see patterns of behaviour and very, very similar strategies in terms of how the police, um, how these undercover officers targeted them, how the relationships played out and and how the exit strategy came about as well. So the more that women got together, they could see that this wasn't a case of a few bad apples. It wasn't a rogue officer as had been, you know, that, that had been... The, the key line when Mark Kennedy was discovered, what the police said was he was a rogue officer. Right. But we started to see that there was a far more strategic approach and that could only have been authorised at a higher level. So it didn't emerge till later that there was a, a sort of an organised police grouping or a, a, an opportunity? I think that really started to come together quite quickly for that group of women. And at the same time, into this kind of... This whole world, we have Peter Francis, who's the police whistleblower, 
who did um, he did a story with Rob Evans and the Guardian, and he obviously disclosed a great deal of information that, that then added to what they'd already managed to bring together as mm. activists and researchers for themselves. So that 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 really concluded for us that this wasn't something that was a rogue officer. There was a very strategic reason why those men were were brought into our lives and they were infiltrating all sorts of left and progressive groups and yeah. family justice campaigns as well as... Right. So, for example, Stephen Lawrence's family right. was spied upon and we know that at least 18 families in that in that category, the family justice category, have been spied upon by the undercover officers who are the same people who who deceived us into relationships. Mm-hmm. So there's a real connection with lots of scandals. It's, not, it's, it's one big scandal, but there are different groups within that. Yes, and uh, the, so the, the police, uh, initially you would, you, you, the campaign presumably was about trying to find out the truth and then at some point it morphed into trying to get some sort of measure of justice. Yeah, presumably. I think you know, certainly I would say it's about truth and it's about justice and it's about making sure it never happens again. So there's three aspects to it. You know, we want to find out the truth, we want to make sure we get justice for what happened and we want to make sure this doesn't happen to anyone else. Yeah, and um, could you just say a little bit about uh, your role within the campaign and, and the role of others? So how are you set up as, a, as an organisation? <clears throat> so when I found out in 2015 that I'd been um, deceived into a relationship with someone that I believed to be a left-wing activist, it really turned my life upside down. But one of the things that I did do as a result of that was throw myself back into activism and I'd been really out of that world for for a decade. Mm. So having met these women, these amazing women, and lots of other activists within the Spy Cops uh, movement, I started to campaign writing, public speaking, and just really trying to raise the profile of our stories. And it's, it's very much about public awareness, because I think that idea that it was a few bad apples has has continued and it's about ensuring that we get as much um, public awareness as we can about the scandal because it's not just our story it's also the story of those families whose lives were intruded upon and who who did not get justice as a result of that there are also a number of miscarriages of justice as a result of undercover policing and then we have the huge blacklisting scandal where you know thousands of construction workers were adversely affected Mm by this whole kind of um, corrupt involvement of the police alongside private businesses. So that there's a, there are a lot of us affected. We know over a 1,000 groups were spied upon, but that's the number of groups, the number of people is, is you know, multiply that by, by however many you like. And there are still so many secrets. So really, we want disclosure. So what we campaign for is disclosure, truth, justice for the people affected, and changes in the law as well. We really are focusing at the moment. One of our big issues is the law around consent because we've had no success to date in holding these officers to account on the fact that we did not consent to be in sexual relationships with them. And that's that's a major priority. So we are looking at lots of legal campaigns and really kind of pushing that awareness through a much broader um, media and public campaign. Do you think it's still going on? I'm not sure that these relationships are going on to the same degree, but I suspect that the level of infiltration into campaign groups would still be going on. And we know from the blacklisting um, campaign that that's, that's still happening. We know that's still happening. We've yeah. seen that recently in Crossrail. 
you know that that's current and that's new and with the you know the real kind of explosion in environmental activism I would suspect that there are undercover police officers in there as well can't say for sure that the undercover relationships to the degree that we've you know, that we were involved yeah. is happening because we're talking about relationships that lasted anything up to five or six years. Mm. So that would be hard to say. And it, presumably that the, there's some sort of post hoc rationalisation for why this happened. Um, it, uh, is the, the line from the police still that, you know, this was, OK, we went too far, but it was there were basically... You know, there's some justification for it, or do they accept now that there was there's no justification? Their apology in 2015 to the eight women who had that original case was categorical that this was an abuse of our human rights and should never have happened. They've not tried to justify it in that context whatsoever because it does breach human rights on several you know several articles, mm. but they will always say that there's a need for undercover policing. And I think they will always they will always try and justify it on that level of surveillance to avoid um, crimes happening. But what we know with the the two units who infiltrated our lives, that was never the agenda. They weren't there to identify crimes or to catch criminals. They were there to disrupt protest, and that was the aim. It was political policing, and it certainly wasn't policing against criminal behaviour. So it's a very different thing. It's a very different beast, in mm. fact. And there's a, I think one of the key issues in that is about this idea of policing by consent, because we like to think in this country that policing is by consent, but that particular strand of policing was never by consent. And it, it was unknown to, you know, police officers working in a regular police station wouldn't even have known these units existed. It was so secretive and it was so corrupt. And it was, you know, it was, it was led by people who then taught the next batch to work in the very same way and they, they actually wrote a manual on how to do it there's a tradecraft manual on how to infiltrate how to start to engage people in relationships and um, it's heavily redacted but from what you can see you know it's quite a sinister thing to actually read this this was a yeah. strategy so can you say a bit about how you got from uh, you know getting you know i suppose uh, guardian articles and some interest to if you like going to the next level and becoming uh, an issue that that got a bit more widespread coverage. Mm-hmm. What was the? What do you think the catalyst was? I think there was always an interest in this story. People have got, uh, you know, the, there's an interest because of the very intimate nature of the abuse. And um, with each of the women, whenever you know, whenever a new woman finds out, there is public interest, and there are stories in the press, and there are some interviews on TV. Mm. I think one of the things that really exploded this into the public consciousness, though, was the Lush campaign. So last summer, 2018, we worked with Lush to have a window campaign. So every single Lush shop would have a window display which showed the public the true kind of nature of this scandal. And that caused a massive furor. Um, It brought it to a whole new audience, which was, you know, for us, the campaign was a massive success. It was huge on every level. It did cause a lot of problems for Lush, though. And their staff were, you know, really verbally abused and quite often felt physically threatened because of the the backlash against it. So, um, who, can you say a bit more about the who? Were the, where was the backlash coming from? It was coming from the police and ex police officers mainly, right. um, and obviously their supporters, people who who, mm. who who felt that aligned to that. 
so that that was that was quite interesting but I think that also changed the tide really turned on that so we had a huge amount of support from the public and in the shops and we gained lots of new supporters as a result of it and interestingly Lush didn't lose any sales so you know the backlash happened but they they managed to survive that and and thrive but what really changed that for us so it was you know it was very much in the public domain then and we we were given a new profile but what changed it was that two of the ex-wives of undercover police officers who'd been involved came out in support of us um and that that really sort of changed the the dynamic because mm. i think the other thing that was important to say is you know as women we were all deceived into really into these long term intimate relationships but the wives of the police officers had no idea that their husbands were doing this yes. and when i say the wives of the of and their husbands they had to be married so those men had to be married in order to do the job that was a prerequisite they chose men who were married and had stable family backgrounds because they felt that they then had something to go back to and the it was called um deep swimming so they were allowed to to go off on this deep swimming mission for so long yes but having that stable family base to go back to was seen as something that was necessary so they didn't go too far um so they had wives and children at home Mm. and that is you know that's that kind of really underlines how sexist this is because it's institutional sexism in terms of the approach to us and it's institutional sexism in terms of those wives as well who had no idea yeah okay we're just going to stop there for a short break We're back um, with with Andrea uh, talking about um, spy cops. Uh, so we were talking before about Lush and your and your work with Lush and their support. Who else have you got support from? And, and you know, you mentioned Rob Evans before, the Guardian yeah. journalist who who wrote a book, which I think was quite important in the sort of in the campaign and the, the yeah I mean Rob's book is probably the the bible of all things spy cops I would say and if if I want to tell someone about my story or the broader story I will I will give them a copy of the book and mm. say read this because you know I'll explain as best I can but this kind of really details it unfortunately it stops before I actually come along so I'm not in the book but he's gonna have to do a second a, you know second <laughs> edition but there's also the blacklisted book by um, Dave Smith and Phil yeah. Chamberlain, you know, massive crossover between blacklisting and spy cops. And I think those two books are kind of really have brought that into the public domain and they have a lot of information. Rob's covered the story extensively in The Guardian, mm-hmm. but we've, we've also had a lot of coverage elsewhere. So the BBC, Channel 4, you know, there have been in-depth interviews with several of the women on, you know, Newsnight, Victoria Derbyshire. Uh, we've just had the Telegraph do a big story as right. well. A lot of the Scottish broadsheets have covered it. Um, BBC Wales has done a story. So that there's a lot right. of stories, and if you start to collate them, it's actually a huge amount of coverage. So 
A lot of media interest. You haven't found, because it sounds like you haven't found what, what a lot of campaigns find, which is an initial interest and then it drops off quite quickly no. and then it's difficult to keep it. I think part of the reason is it continues to evolve. So we find out more information. We never get all of the information. You know, as we, we fight for information and the police put mm. the walls up because they don't want us to have the information because it's so sinister and because it's so awful. So we're, we're in this kind of constant mode, but then we also find out new things. There are new stories. Yes. New women come forward who, you know, like myself, for years have no idea this happened. They believe that the man they were in a relationship with had a breakdown, left them, disappeared in tragic circumstances. And then connected to that, you have all of these other stories. So, you know, families who find out that they are, they're ch- the child who died at the age of eight, their, their identity was actually stolen by an undercover officer... And I think because it's so awful and so grotesque yeah. that, you know, people people want to, they want to know why this happened. They want the answers. We want the answers, but I think the public want the answers as well. And the more they find out, the, the bigger the scale is. So it, it doesn't go away in that sense. But we've also had a huge amount of support from the trade unions, particularly mm. Unite. Unite have been magnificent. So I suppose one of the challenges of being a campaign where many of us are anonymous for um, you know for reasons to protect our privacy is that we want to campaign in a very big way, but there are you know a group of women who can't show their faces. So we yes. have to be quite creative about it, and I think we have to be quite artistic in how we um, and how we kind of visually campaign. But we also get the support of the trade unions, so they mm. will come along, they will campaign with us, they will agitate with us, uh, unite, allow us lots of support in terms of their social media. And I think that's that's kind of what we need. So rather than it being a very small niche campaign, we've really connected to all of the other affected groups. So that's, that's including the family justice campaigns. And then also kind of taking it out into the world a bit more. So, you know, off the back pages of the broadsheets and into the you know, into the, the, the living rooms of people at 10 in the morning on Victoria Derbyshire. That's mm-hmm. where we want to be. Yes. And just politically, what has, you know, you, you've had support, I think you were telling me before, from John McDonald's been MPs. hugely supportive. Yeah. Jenny Jones has been supportive from the outset. Mm. And I think we've got, um, apart from the, the Conservative Party, we've got, there are people in every party who support right. us. So the Green Party, Ply Cymru, the SNP... And obviously the Labour movement, many, many MPs were spied upon as well. Right. And I think it's important to say, it's, it, you know, you've got these left-wing activist groups and then you have people who are actually members of Parliament yeah. being spied upon who have files. Diane yeah. Abbott, you know, Jeremy Corbyn, people who are very much in the public domain. Mm-hmm. So it kind of, it really subverts democracy in many ways. Mm-hmm. And I think it's, it's also getting that message out to people that people who were targeted may have been involved in, you know, radical groups. They may not have been involved in radical groups. One of the groups targeted was the Young Liberals. I mean, they're not particularly radical. So it's this whole kind of policing mm. of politics. And it's a very, very, it's a very different form of policing to, you know, Bobby's on the beat who are investigating, yeah. you know, public disorder or burglaries. Or it's, it's um, I think for that reason, this, the the nature of it, how secretive it is and how much scope it's had to, dis- to really disrupt people's lives is why it's something we have to just keep getting out there into the public yeah. domain. So there's the bit of the story which is, you know, the issue getting out there and then 
that's led to um, to pressure on the on the on the police, but also the government initiating an inquiry. The public inquiry. So yeah. I think as a result of the huge scandal, you know, of the the initial case and the women finding out, and Stephen Lawrence that initiated the public inquiry, which was it commenced in two thousand and fifteen. It's very much behind schedule. I mean, it's it's years behind schedule now. Mm-hmm. It hasn't started to hear any evidence. Yeah. And that in itself has been a huge issue. So disclosure, you know, people want to see their files, but the police actually have, have our files before we do. Right. They have They have all of the information and we don't have the information that's held on us. We still don't have the names of the groups that were spied upon. You know, we know we know of some groups, but we don't know of all of them. And we don't have the names of the officers. So if you can imagine, at the moment, we know that there are 30 women that we know of. There are so many more, because so many of those police officers have been given full anonymity. That's not just their real name, it's also their cover name. And if you don't know the cover name, you, you don't know that that man that you were in a relationship with was actually not who he said he was. So the, the public inquiry, you know, that, that was a... It was a success to get that to get that out there and to begin, but it's a constant campaign to improve it. Yeah. Um, and to look at the way that the process of it is not working. It is incredibly secretive. Does the public inquiry mean that there is, uh, or likely to be, any <clears throat> any particular outcome, political outcome? You know, will there be new laws created, do you think? Is that one of your aims? Well, one of our aims will certainly be around that. Um, <coughs> and one of the things we're campaigning on at the moment. So what, for this to never happen again is a, is a campaign aim of ours. For um, police policing to be done by consent is an aim of ours. So for under, you know, the current um, Labour manifesto says that undercover policing must have warrants. Now, every other form of, of undercover policing and policing has warrants before, you know, they can enter your house or tap your phone. But not with not with this not with this political policing. There was no warrant. There was no record. This was all done, you know, very much undercover. And I think that has to change. I also think that the law around consent has to change. You know, for us, very specifically for us, the law on sexual consent. We don't think it's dubious. We don't think that we gave any consent to being in those relationships. But the CPS has so far refused to prosecute because the CPS has made claims that the relationships were genuine, there were genuine feelings. And at the moment, that's, that's, a, that's a massive you know, legal fight for us, and it's one that we'll be taking forward, certainly, in the next year. So we'll so, continue to look at the, the you know, raising public awareness, but also how we can fight this on a legal basis. So really kind of up in that. Um, which involves raising lots of money. <laughs> yes, I was going to ask you. That's a challenge. Yeah, ask you about money. So, <clears throat> do you have any sort of serious sources of income, or is it? But ad hoc, how does it? How does it work? We've been fortunate to get donations, so from trade unions, from some private individuals. So we operate on very, very small amounts of money, and a lot of the campaign work is done voluntarily. So, generally, we work alongside lots of other campaign groups. And we all come together. We've had um, we've had funding to do specific projects. So, you know, we look at trying to make tangible outcomes from our campaigning as well. We want to make things that will last and things that we can kind of spread into the world. So we're currently working on writing a book, which is, is quite exciting. 
I think in terms of the, you know, we can do all of this. You know, we can do all of that on a small budget. But the big issue, the one that I've just mentioned, is the legal campaigning because that can't be done on a small budget. So really looking at how we can move that move that up and try and kind of mm. get get some money together to fight this on a legal basis because that's the expensive part. That's the really expensive part. And that, yeah. that's sort of a long-term plan as well. Yeah. Um, in terms of the public inquiry, one of the big aims for next year, so when they do start to hear evidence, when they start to have hearings, and the police officers will come and they will give evidence, and we will be required to give evidence. We want as much of uh, as much public support as we can gather. We want people to turn up, we want people to be there. So we'll be calling on all of our supporters, all of the trade unions, to come and make their presence known because, you know, the bigger the presence, the more that we can apply that pressure. Yeah, and do you get the feeling that this is something that, you know, future governments will will take seriously? Do you feel... That there's still a sort of head of steam momentum around it. Um, you know, you mentioned John McDonald's interested. Obviously, he's, he's high profile. High he's level. been really involved in the blacklisting campaign. Mm. And I think one of the other things to say is that, you know, when these officers leave these policing units, they very often go into the public, the private sector. Mm-hmm. So they go to work in private security. They are heavily involved in working in big business right. and the tactics and the strategies and the knowledge that they take with them is very worrying. Yes. And the impact that has on industry, the impact that has on trade unions, the impact that has on people's democratic rights yeah. is, is something that we, we kind of need to keep fighting that mm. because that's still going on. So it, it, is any of that legal or illegal? How, what's the current political status of... Blacklisting is um, illegal. Blacklisting is it's illegal. Absolutely but it, illegal. What, what level of corporate espionage is legal or illegal? And is it clear? That's not entirely clear to me. I wouldn't be an expert on that one. But yeah. I think what we do know is blacklisting is illegal and it still goes on. So we right. have to keep challenging that. And that needs to be a priority of the next, yeah. hopefully, um, progressive government that we have in power. Yeah. Um, and I think people's rights being protected rather than eradicated is something that we all work together on as campaign groups because it's it's the crossover. You know, it's the reasons why the the, the relationship that I had, you know, that person was in a trade union and infiltrated trade unions, high-profile trade unionists were people that he befriended and went to live with after he left me, having right. suffered a, a psychological breakdown, supposedly. So the tar- that was that was one of the key targets was to infiltrate trade unions, and that really is undermining our democracy. Andrew, thanks thanks very much for your time today. Been- Thank you. It's been great. Thank you, Steve.